Data Materiality, a podcast series about the ways in which digital data depends on physical forms and infrastructures and comes to matter in practice and imagination. The impetus for this podcast is a three-year research project by the same name, Data Materiality, co-sponsored by Birkbeck Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Media and Culture and the Vasari Research Center for Art and Technology. My name is Joel McKim. I co-host this series with my colleague Scott Rogers. In this episode, I spoke with Paula Bialski. Paula is Associated Professor of Digital Sociology at University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Previously, she was Junior Professor of Digital Sociality at the Institute of Culture and Aesthetics of Digital Media at Lufiana University in Lunenburg and Head of the Digital Cultures Research Lab. Paula's research focuses on the impact of digital media on working cultures, communication, and the concept of intimacy. In this podcast, we discussed her current book project entitled Slow Software, which is based on a two-year ethnographic study examining the operating modes and workplace cultures of software companies in Berlin. The discussion was actually recorded some time ago, well before the current health crisis, when Paula was visiting us at Birkbeck in the autumn of 2018. But the release of this podcast is well-timed as her article, Speeding Up, Slowing Down, Breaking Down, an Ethnography of Software-Driven Mobility, has just been published in the journal Mobilities piece of writing that relates closely to our conversation here and also to our soon-to-be-published book, Slow Software. Enjoy the podcast. Um, so uh, one of the reasons why we were very interested in having you come to London and speak uh, in relation to this particular series on data materiality is that we're very interested in your research methods. Um, you're Obviously, you're an ethnographer, and I wonder if maybe we could begin by you talking a little bit about what you think the method of ethnography mm. brings to the table in a way uh, in terms of being able to focus on issues of materiality that might escape other kinds of approaches? Mm, this is a great question. Um, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here. Uh, I really had a great time at the chat, at the talk yesterday. And uh, it's always interesting to talk to media studies scholars as an ethnographer, because I feel that it's a method that's maybe maybe underused around media studies. Uh, and I'm sometimes surprised why, because it, it does give a lot. It's a very fruitful method. Um, and I, I guess it's, I mean, I was reading recently, I got really into Sherry B. Ortner, who's one of kind of a, a leading anthropologist that I should have read a long time ago. And she really talks a lot about just the ethnographer's body and using the body as sort of a tool and, and the person and the self and the, the whole being of the ethnographer um, and immersing your whole body in, in a scene, um, in a culture, in a space. And I, I find that exactly really uh, that's exactly how I felt and that's exactly how I I do ethnography that I have to put my whole self in a space and um, a lot of people take a lot of notes uh, and and really kind of try to observe everything but I feel that especially if you have the luxury of having a lot of time in a space and what I mean a lot of time is really like a to a year, right, to two years, or at least like half a year, very immersed, and then in and out, then you you start picking up things that you don't even have to write down. You just you just this tacit sort of knowledge that kind of flows through you, and you kind of start understanding. and And I think this stuff that's maybe not so visible, of course, if you and that's what I mean the stereotype is something that's not so visible when you are just 
on a surface level observer then comes out and and we talk about how di- digital infrastructures are something that are is is also very tangible it's not something in this in a cloud it's not something magic it's not something you know that we can we just sort of dream that our data is going somewhere it's also very very tangible but it's important to look beyond the um, kind of obvious go to at things like ooh a server or some cables but sure. what else is there what yeah. else is the tangible part of our digital infrastructures and maybe that has to do also with um i don't know i'm just trying to think of off the top of my head but even the way i don't know developers sit together and how they both program together what pair programming is about and how um they look at each other or touch each other or brush each other's you know uh, chairs uh, or push each other around and mm-hmm. fight over what code is better um i mean this is just i'm just making this up but i have observed that and and mm-hmm. I, so looking i think beyond the obvious yeah. sorry the long answer to their question no it's great um before well before we get too far it's probably good to sort of paint the picture of your last major ethnography where you spent mm-hmm. i believe eight months right with yeah. the, with this yeah. berlin um software development company. Um, And last night in the talk, you began by um, distinguishing this environment from your previous ethnographic field work, which was in Silicon Valley. And Mm. that that clear, you know, uh, point Mm. of distinction between one software environment versus Mm. another was was one of the really interesting things that you Mm. um, uh, spoke about last night. So maybe, maybe you could paint a similar picture and, and, and also talk about that difference between those two fields. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And the third thing that I haven't uh, also shared, which I could share with uh, the listeners, is that I even I did study uh, a sort of a software community in Montreal also before okay. that, sort of in the post.com uh, era as well, in kind of 2004, uh, 2003. Uh, so I can also get into that. But I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of the, I was, beca- I got, became interested in this Silicon Valley sort of, the ideology or the techno solutionism and the sort of socio-technical imaginary that Silicon Valley projects um, onto the rest of the tech world of, so this is how it is and this is how it should be. And this is how quickly we should develop software. And um, and I think that happens through sort of these regional sort of centers of any industry that other industries look to it as, as a model. And there is a certain model as a, as Silicon Valley sort of, world order of the way in which to make technology and and i noticed that i I must say i didn't i didn't spend a lot of time i didn't spend like a year there i was there for a summer and i was doing less of a situated ethnography and more um doing Mm -hmm. a lot of interviews with um different yeah stakeholder holders and data brokers i did i worked on a a a piece around privacy um at the time and um and I, yeah, and I found it fascinating because every stereotype that I, I came to know as what the Silicon Valley bro did and looked like and how um, he or often she spoke um, about, about the technology sort of saving the world and um, how wonderful this innovation they are they're building, it really... It, it was it was just very surprising to me because it, it is very very strong and then I came to my field site and for those of you who weren't there yesterday I'm I did um, a few months at a uh, sorry, a few years at a 
embedded maps in, in cars and, and works sort of in a map and logistics uh, sort of mapping company. Um, and it's a large company and it's what I talked about more is that it's they kind of really push back against this ideology. They push back both consciously and subconsciously in the way in which um, they work they the speed at which they work, uh, the time they come to work, the time they go home, how they build software. Um, they partially, of course, management tries to get them to go at a certain speed and be very competitive and use a certain language that is also present in the Silicon Valley. But actually, Berlin does it very differently, and it's it is slower. It is um, yeah, much more sort of average and I would say the sort of mediocre and not the negative sense of the word but in we're not striving to be number one we're kind of in the middle and that's okay and I find that I found that very surprising and a lot of few developers actually even talk about that is that they don't want to be in Silicon Valley they left San Francisco they said goodbye because they won't want to step foot in that place anymore because it's a toxic environment I think so San Francisco has become more and more toxic Mm -hmm. to um, tech workers or just actually anyone it's a very difficult place to live right now yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that came out very strongly in the in the talk um, was the kinds of agency that these developers have mm-hmm. in terms of making decisions about life decisions, work decisions. Um, just working for this particular um, company is is a kind of decision, a very clear one. It seems like mm-hmm. for many of them, there's other opportunities uh, with. You know, different benefits, but also different consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also interested in the way you talked about the uh, the more sort of tactics of the workplace and how um, even within that environment, which is a little bit more laid back, obviously, than, than, than many of these companies, uh, there were these sort of tactics and strategies to um, sort of keep control of your own schedule and, and, and mm. in some ways not be managed in the way that mm. perhaps a company might want to, to manage their employees. Mm. Um, you used the term uh, monopoly of comp- competency, yeah. uh, which I thought was really interesting. And yeah. so I wonder if you could talk about some of those sure. sort of strategies and tactics. Sure. Uh, yeah. The monopoly of competence comes from Nathan Ensmenger's book, Computer Boys Takeover, which I really draw from very much. Um, that has its flaws, but it's a really wonderful text if anyone wants to look at sort of the history of um, software engineering. And um, and actually, and that's, the, the term really comes from the fact that software developers have a knowledge that their management doesn't have. And there's a huge, huge gap, even though if you look at um, as someone who works in car engineering or in medicine, um, sort of a, I guess a, sh- a chef or whatever, the head doctor of a ward would not know exactly how to perform that or this procedure because they did it mm-hmm. 20 years ago, but they can kind of imagine how that works. And oftentimes that's not the case in software and management, that a software developer then has this competence that the the manager has absolutely no clue really what they're doing and and you could imagine these two or three large screens that the software developer is um sitting and coding and then the manager walks behind their back and doesn't really know what they're they're doing so i often notice that despite the fact that there are all sorts of methods and strategies and sort of management scientific management approaches to how to the productivity and, and kind of enforcing productivity among developers um these are called um agile scrum methodologies some are called waterfall there's i can get into that as well but there are these these methods that it has to there's a sprint and you have to do something in two weeks and you pull different tickets 
But a developer sometimes say, well, I'm blocked, I can't do that. Or let's say they're tired that day or they don't want to do something or they're working even on, on their own project on the side. Mm. Some of them may say, hey, I'm developing my own, whatever, my own app. And I'm kind of doing this on this screen and on this other screen, I'm kind of slowing, chipping away at the problems and bugs that I actually have to work on. Um, and not everyone does that, but you're free to do that anytime you kind of want. I sometimes see as a developer because right. nobody will really will know if why, why are you blocked? Why are you slow? Why are you not doing this on time? Well, because it's tricky and it's difficult because you just tell your manager that this is, I need to figure a few things out here and, uh, or um, this is a very tricky problem. And how would your manager know? You know, so I think this is interesting the way um, the software developer uses the, both the infrastructure of the software itself, the software environment, how they build their problems, the legacy of all the code that comes before them in order to, um, to kind of go at their own pace and push back it against the speed at which management enforces their development process to go at. Right, know? right. I mean, obviously, you paint a picture of a slow software and, and um, kind of stable mediocrity, use mm -hmm. that term, not in quite the, the negative sense that you might imagine, but uh, but just in terms of a kind of stability and uh, um, uh, neither you know, competent, but, uh, but not mm. too innovative mm. or ambitious, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is a particular kind of environment. Um, and yet you also painted a picture of, um, an environment where there are in some ways sort of social hierarchies and there are, mm. um, there is, um, uh, certain kinds of inequality or competitiveness mm. within the environment itself. So I wonder if you could talk through yeah. some of that relationship between different kinds of developers and, uh, and the kind of competition or the, um, you know, ambition, how ambitions get played out in that environment. That's a very complicated question. And there's so much that I could say to that topic, but um, I definitely don't want to paint uh, sort of a lot of all these developers sitting uh, thousands of them in this office in Berlin and working at their own pace and taking long vacations and doing whatever they want. Right. There's, there's a possibility of doing that. And of course it's for, certain certain groups i guess and certain types of developers and I, i'd say that the hierarchy goes from i mean there's also a knowledge sort of hierarchy in terms of people who are more more skilled or have let's say dropped out of their phds um, but have a lot of knowledge because they went to the best computer science universities and now work on more the research and development team or work on, you know, some core algorithm team that develops uh, the best algorithm to whatever, to apply to whatever problem. Those guys and girls definitely have much more leeway to say and do whatever they want. And then there's a lot of, um, I mean, new, younger, I mean, this is just like in any company, younger developers who um, have to learn, have to actually adapt to the whole entire system, and they're the ones who are a bit more pushed around. But another whole thing is that a lot of work is outsourced, and it's it's there is the sort of the center of this headquarters in Berlin, and a lot of companies in Berlin, and like anywhere, they would outsource the sort of dirty work, the work that's, when dirty work in software is called bug squashing, let's say they have to really fix bugs or they test software that's also not fun or they, um, I mean, there's a whole list of stuff that nobody really wants to do, but they have to do anyways or make certain requirements for a customer that nobody really wants to do. And so this is definitely outsourced and then 
people in these companies in whether that's Wrocław or Kiev or um, Bangalore, they're they're the ones working at a at a speed that then the ones in Berlin can benefit from the, the slowness of you know stepping back. Right. I mean, it's certainly um, clear that this is a sort of privileged environment. Yes. You know, and not not everyone has the it the ability to make that choice to say mm -hmm. I want to slow down and work mm -hmm. in a in a place that has slightly more reasonable working conditions and a better quality of life. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, you're very clear about the fact that this is quite particular mm -hmm. to a kind of Berlin case and also a particular kind of company. Um, of course, some of, some of these reasons are because of things like German labor laws and mm -hmm. just the general kind of atmosphere of the city of Berlin and it's prioritizing of the kind of quality of life. It's not unusual there. Yeah. Um, but, it is the case, obviously, in the, in the tech industry more generally, that it is a pretty competitive industry. There, there are potential for companies to disrupt the industry and mm -hmm. a sense of kind of jostling between these different companies. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a little bit why this company is able to maintain that um, atmosphere and, 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 and that kind of work environment? And, you know, is this a model that Mm. is um, able to be replicated mm. elsewhere mm. or is it really quite specific to you know this situation well we're living also in a time where now you have tech companies that have been successful for the past 30 years uh or they've also benefited from entire internet industry that as also has its own now it's getting older it's we're not in the mid or late 90s we're not in the early 2000s when everything is new and there's these new companies and there everyone's struggling and fighting you have these dinosaur companies or kind of these slow um these sort of with these monolith old code bases that also provide certain infrastructure that's let's say critical infrastructure important infrastructure or you'd have other you know, third parties that are relying on the infrastructure that these tech companies have been building for a long time. And they sit on these assets. I think that it's a different situation than just a, you know, a new company that boom grew and, and now has to yeah. fight for their way through. So I think we're, we're seeing now a different situation where you, you have a comfortable sort of the companies that are quite comfortable on what they've built in the past years and are either fixing the stuff and updating the stuff. Because as I mentioned also yesterday, working with legacy code and you know, these old, long sort of 10, 15 year code bases that have to constantly be cleaned up and updated, you're constantly fighting with stuff that's breaking down and they just aren't able to innovate or not, or not even able to invest in innovation um, because they're still working away with what they've been, you know, they want to sustain their customer base and sustain that what has been successful for a while. So I think it's very specific to, I think, these old com older companies that have made some money. Um, and now is I mean, there's a huge chance, I think, that there's going to be newer companies that are going to innovate and figure out a new way of, let's say, mapping something or selling something or building something. And they're going to take over and maybe provide these other third parties, these other customers with a something faster, something better. And then mm. they're you know, these older sort of monolithic beasts will die out. Um, and I, I kind of see that, unfortunately. I don't think that, I don't think the way in which we see capitalism and sort of this like free market competition of um, going as fast and as cheap and as uh, best as possible will leave space for these types of companies. I think they're just 
living on sort of the kind of monopoly that they've had built for the while that they pr provide a product that nobody else has been providing. And I think right. they could be replaced. It's interesting with this particular mm -hmm. company, a, a mapping company, which obviously has mm -hmm. some you know, legacy IP, had been able to somehow kind of broker some arrangements so that they have access to um, the information that's required. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the access to the resource of data, which they're founded on seems to be hugely important in this case. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then, yeah, you do wonder how fragile in some ways that monopoly is in this in cases like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was wondering the, the, maybe after having spent time in this particular environment in Berlin, if you've sort of reflected it all, you know, back to something like Silicon Valley, I guess I'm just curious about some of these, um, you know, massive tech companies, Google is the obvious yeah, example, yeah. Um, that somehow, you know, they have the characteristics of, you know, obviously they're much larger than the company that you're, mm -hmm. that you've been spending time with, but they must have the same kind of management challenges, challenges of size and so mm -hmm. on. But somehow, at least from a distance, seem to be able to also maintain this ridiculous mm -hmm. kind of labor commitment and mm -hmm. expectation of pushing and, and work and drive. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you, I mean, this is probably more speculative and maybe as an ethnographer, you don't want to make these speculations. Yeah, and that's yeah, fair yeah, enough. That's but um, I'm just curious how, how does Silicon Valley, as it grows into these, what should be dinosaurs in a yeah, way, yeah. seems to somehow be able to resist that and sort of manage its workforce in a way that keeps them mm. moving at this pace. Yeah, it's tough because I don't know. I really can't, I can't speculate. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't been inside Google. I know that they're, I can imagine they're a much tighter ship or at least, and there's a few things I think that uh, mechanisms that also drive a certain ideology or a certain kind of identity of the worker to the brand of the company and sort of this kind of ideology of passion and commitment. And I think at least that's a stereotype that I have of a lot of these larger companies that they, they kind of, it's like a, it's sort of like a church that you go to and you believe in a certain religion and that you, you love what, you know, the scriptures of whatever the church is saying. And I think that that is for me very strong in these larger companies in Silicon Valley from what I've witnessed and experienced. And I think that that's maybe let's call it success, but I don't even know for that. I don't see it as success, but that's maybe how they, they maintain their sort of drive of their workers and motivation of the workers to, to work, to, yeah, to work, to innovate, to do 80 hour work weeks and, and um, stick around. I, I think, and again, I'm just speculating, but I don't know, but that's a very good question that maybe I don't have an answer to is like, how do, how do they become so successful and number one? And yeah. why are they not like just, you know, chilling out and lazy and slow as well. Uh, why don't they sit back on the asses that they have and, and just hang out? But, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that, that like that uh, Google is sitting all of the just assets of their search and that's it. They're like not really innovating that much more. That's another thing. That's kind of a rumor that I've also heard that inside Google is not as sort of tight knit ship as you could imagine. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the talk last night is that your uh, investigations of software and software development also entail really interesting insights into the software that produces software. Mm. So both in terms of kind of management software um, mm. that sort of keeps track of the labor force, but then of course the kind of software that allows code to be compiled and worked on by mm -hmm. you know a really complex 
you know, group Groups. of individuals yeah. or, and, and teams that are, you know, making very specific components of this and it all has to fit together. So mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this sort of this, yeah. the software that allows software to, to yeah, happen. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, my colleague Amin Bevelungen works on this algorithmic management and looks at software that also manages groups of people, not only that, of course, work on software, but in general, what does it do to us when we're, as workers, monitored by our bosses um, through a sort of surveillance system that is, uh, you know, a product like PeopleSoft or you know, if, if the listeners out there that know this type of system or work in this type of system, it's it's a really soft, this is one management, there's management software out there that you as a worker have to um, have certain performance indicators, certain things that you do, your goals for the year, your sort of um, stuff that you have to achieve. And um, you go back to your boss every, uh, you know, whatever quarter and, and report on exactly what, uh, you know, what you were, what you did, what you didn't do. And that is also there and it's there throughout all sorts of, you know, companies, software companies. And then there's another piece of software that is just, you know, a, a group of software developers within a company develop software that allows all sorts of teams to integrate their software into sort of one, to compile it into one sort of uh, piece of software that works, right? Because mm-hmm. not, not, there's not 10 developers that work on everything together. They all work on individual pieces and have to sort of um, make it integrate into someone to a whole, right? And yeah. so I, I haven't really had anything that I've looked at theoretically and in, in that light as something sort of exciting or interesting in this aspect. I just more think that it's a, a way in which trying to go back to this topic of sort of monopoly of condiments, trying to control a worker that's very difficult to control these days and trying to surveil and make transparent a work that is black boxed all the time, that is sort Mm of um, blind to the manager themselves and blind to other developers. The developer just knows the tip of the iceberg of what they're building. They don't know how the other stuff works or how you would integrate it. And um, there are these few characters, just like a DevOps team who builds the software to for software developers to integrate the stuff together. They kind of know, have a bird's eye view of everything and know how it fits or a manager tries to know what everyone else is doing. It's difficult though. It, it escapes them, right? It's not always as easy as just building software and then click, we'll, we'll know how this works or we'll know right. what this is doing. Maybe we could um, conclude by maybe you could tell us just where some of the this research is being published. Where can we yeah. find it in written form? Sure. Uh, yeah, what kind of places it will live uh, in the near future? <laughs> well, at the moment, I'm writing a book uh, on slow software, and I hopefully will have it ready by a sort of next summer. So I think next fall, two thousand end of the year, two thousand nineteen, some stuff will be emerging. But uh, I've have written a few. Um, chapters here and there, journal articles here and there that um, that are both published and or in the pipeline. So, really, I mean, just check out my website. Check out just Google my. I have an academia website, and and just check out my work. But uh, hopefully, it'll be finished. And I, and I also really hope that my work speaks to different audiences. And it always is just so nerve wracking, but also wonderful when there is a computer scientist in the audience and. They say, hey, but Paula, you forgot about this, but hey, I really appreciate that you're looking into our world in a certain way, and and or then you have a media scientist or an mm. anthropologist. So I have these three worlds that I try to speak to, and I hope my work is not 
going to close itself off to just an audience of you know media studies or science and technology scholars or something like that. well that was certainly clear in the room last night i mean the event was a kind of open invitation and then it did bring computer scientists it brought uh, ethnographers and it brought digital yeah. culture and media studies students um oh, yeah. so it was uh uh, it was a great evening. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. For uh, I look forward to reading more of the work. Thank you so much. Thanks, okay. guys. That's it for this episode. It was great speaking with Paula. I think her work provides a really fascinating and grounded insight into the variety of work cultures and labor practices present in the tech industry. When we consider questions of materiality in relation to technology, we often speak about things like infrastructures, resources, hardware. Paul's ethnographic methods bring the human body into view as a sometimes overlooked component of this material assemblage. It introduces a whole different register of questions into the mix. Concepts like exhaustion or friendship or enjoyment become really interesting to consider. Keep your eyes out for our next episode and please have a listen to the earlier episodes in the series where my colleague Scott Rogers speaks with wonderful people like Vicki Meyer and Shannon Matter. And if you'd like to know more about the Data Materiality Project, including this podcast series, visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash Vasari. That's spelled V-A-S-A-R-I, where information about the project should be easy to find. Thank you, and until next time.